fundamentally, I'm not a believer in this idea that the banking system is ready to rob grandma from her last pennies and it is fraught with with problems and set up to to ultimately fail. If that were the case, I personally don't see where life insurance is the safety net. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Better Wealth podcast. I am here with Brandon Roberts from the Insurance Pro blog. We were joking before we hit record. Their podcast for 10 years and counting, and they hold the record for being having the most clout in the insurance industry when it comes to podcasters and blogs. So it's an honor, Brandon. Thank you. We've been talking for a little bit. I'm grateful that you are coming on the show. I'm not in my studio today, but um, I'm, I'm making the best of uh, on the road studio. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for, for having me. Before we dive into just like insurance topics, I really value hearing people's stories and getting really the why behind why they do what they do. And for anyone that listens to you or reads the blog, they know that you're an insurance nerd. Okay. You can, you own that, that name and you really know your stuff, but I know that, that you just weren't born out of the womb, loving actuarial tables. So it's like, how did that passion begin? And where, how did you get into the industry? And what was like the aha moment where you're like, Hey, I actually want to like dedicate my life to this. So I, I have a tendency to like to pick things apart. And that's true of kind of everything. I came into the industry originally assuming that I was going to be focused much more on the investment side. And joining the industry straight out of college, being 22 years old, there were not that many people who had any reasonable amount of money who wanted to talk to me about their their finances. And what I did find is I ended up talking to a lot of people about the options they had in their 401k because just about anybody you tell or anybody you walk up to and say, I'm in the finance industry or investments, they'll, they'll typically run by you the various options that are in their, their 401k plan and ask you what your thoughts are on them and which ones they should be in, which is fine for conversation, but it's not a great way to get paid. So I, I started with Guardian and while I was there, I ran into a lot of conversation taking place with respect to whole life insurance. And for me, it kind of became a mission to figure out what the big deal was. And so I spent a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, running various iterations in illustration software just to pick it apart and see what happens if we, we pluck that string or pull that cord. And that's when I started to realize just what was possible, purely from an accumulation point of view. And then later, um, other things came about infinite banking as a concept started to gain more steam. And that that kind of opened a whole new world of possibilities. And so that is when I started to realize, okay, there is a specialty here and it's very niche, but there are people who, who do or could be very seriously benefited by this. And um, interestingly, I started talking about it quite a bit um, online trying to find various avenues. So there were a couple of forums mm -hmm. way back in the day. And I decided to launch the insurance pro blog back in 2011 after I left Guardian. And it was interesting, the number of people that were out there who were vaguely aware that you could do something like this with cash value life insurance. And the number of people who were looking for someone who was very much a subject matter expert. So I decided to take up the cause and become a subject matter expert because there weren't that many other people that were really dedicated to it. Even when I was at Guardian as a career agent, there were people who understood whole life insurance was a way to accumulate value, but they didn't really get the pieces and parts. And they were in it much more for the sake of, well, we sell whole life insurance. So that's what we talk about. But how to manipulate it and do fancy things, uh, that, that's, that's not my thing. So not a lot of it was going on. And in fact, the first time that I submitted a case that was very much manipulated to focus on cash accumulation, um, the new business coordinator called me because they weren't, they, like they, 
didn't know what to do with this. Like what, what there's certain inputs I have to use and I don't get what's going on here. So it, it was, it was eye-opening because I, I thought for a long time that people were holding back. Like there, there were, there were tricks to the trade that I was not privy to, and it, I was going to have to dig this out of people. And it took me a long time to accept, no, they're, they're, it, they're not hiding anything. They just don't know. But it became very much the people who came to me looking for this and the, the gratitude they had about somebody being able to speak about this and, and walk them through the process. That's when I decided, okay, this is, this is where I should focus this. Forget the investment side of it. There are plenty of other people who can talk about that. I'm going to go, go subject matter specialty on this. Was there, was there like a moment where you were like, like the epiphany happened when it came to life insurance or you talk about it being an accumulation tool. I'm sure, sure like overfunding or fully funded or max funded. It was kind of like that interesting concept of like, but like, was there something that you learned or was there just a, an epiphany that went off to be like, why, why isn't everyone teaching this or why isn't everyone doing this? I certainly, it, it, it was much more gradual, not kind of a, a moment, but more an event to get there. Um, in my eyes, I've always just naturally been slightly on the safer conservative side when it came to accumulation. Yeah. Um, not that I don't make certain high-risk bets. Personally, I have. But I have always appreciated the sort of steady-as-you-go approach to things. And so um, it, it really became more about that to me. Yeah. Um, and then watching other people in the industry, especially when they were focused on investments. And I, I came about just before the collapse of 2008. Yeah. So I watched a lot of people around me hunker under their desks as they were fielding all kinds of questions about what was going on with the market and what they could do and why this happened and why as professionals were they, they not able to avoid this sort of situation. and in all honesty, there's there's only so much one can do to hedge risk when you go into investments that are implicitly risky. Um, and so for me, it became very much about non-correlated assets. And yes. there's a sort of traditional basket of that that's not really non-correlated at all. Life insurance has always remained the most non-correlated in my eyes. Yeah. Um, one thing that makes you guys very unique is you um, talk about whole life and you can go super deep in whole life. You also talk about IUL and you can go super deep in IUL and all, all kinds of life insurance. And I, I really appreciate that about you. And I had my moment of fame in your, in your uh, podcast, probably a year and a half ago. I don't, I don't know. It was a while ago um, where, you know, I, I came from the world where it was essentially learning that whole life is superior and IUL is not. And uh, a lot of the people that I've learned from gave really good, you know, uh, I would say good talking points and all those things. And I'm grateful for the education that I learned. Um, and now I'm speaking to you saying like, I want to be super well-rounded. I don't want to be the stick to the talking points. This is why I believe and don't like, I don't want to learn. And so as I you know, as I've learned and, you know, been open-minded, we, we do both and I'm, I'm, I'm still skew more towards whole life, but it's like, I, I like, dude, I want to be open-minded and like do the right thing for the client and be able to articulate and, and truly help our clients do the right thing. How did you get into IUL? Cause if you came from guardian, you probably started on the whole life side and then we're open-minded. And then like, how would you explain the pros and cons? Because you get people that are very passionate. I read your comments. I want to talk about infinite banking next because I think there's a lot that we could talk about there. But it seems like you get super opinion opinions on both sides. And I'm currently at a conference where majority is IUL and the thought of you doing whole life is kind of like looked down upon. I remember at, at Guardian, one of my first exposures to index universal life insurance was somebody that I prospected to a small business owner. I, I started in upstate New York because I went to Syracuse University. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the Syracuse area. And I, I just happened to prospect this, this small business owner who owned an index universal life insurance. He'd actually, he'd replaced it a few years ago 
he had a VUL and some agent came along and convinced him that he should move into this other product. He didn't really understand why he was there, but he, he owned it. And um, I'm looking at it and I'm fairly new at this point. And I'm, I mean, I know universal life insurance conceptually, but it's doing some stuff that I've never seen before. And so I, I went to other people at Guardian to get more advice on this. And as luck would have it, the sort of go-to backend expert for us at the time was a guy who spent quite a few years at Lincoln. So he was very familiar with indexed universal life insurance. And uh, so that, that was helpful. But the, the guy who ran the office that I was attached to told me that um, universal life insurance, his, his take was this. He has sold zero universal life insurance policies in his career. And he'd been around for like 40 years at that point. And in his mind, he'd sold one too many. So that's my initial exposure. Um, and when I started the insurance pro blog, I didn't talk a lot about universal life insurance. I kind of categorized life insurance as cash value life insurance, which was basically whole life insurance and then term insurance. And when I was, was launching the insurance pro blog, I was definitely at that point going through a moment of, of much more investigation to understand the ins and outs specifically of index universal life insurance, because I felt at the time I had a good understanding of traditional universal life insurance and variable universal life insurance. Um, but being at Guardian, index universal life insurance was off the table. Um, it was back then. So I didn't spend a lot of time looking at it. And I was in New York where there were far fewer products available. So I didn't have to compete with it all that much. Um, as I started to look at universal life insurance and understand the differences between things like the cash value accumulation test and the guideline premium test and how that impacts universal life insurance as an accumulation tool, there definitely was a moment where I sat back and said, okay, there's, there's real merit to this. And there are going to be people who would absolutely like to go this direction versus whole life insurance if they're looking to accumulate cash in life insurance for the purpose of wealth accumulation, retirement income planning, whatever it may be. And I started to bring index universal life insurance specifically into the fold as I was looking at proposals for people and seeing how it compared. And as has traditionally been the case, it is very strong when people are looking at it as a retirement income supplement plan. Um, and that's where a lot of universal life insurance sales started to take off for me. But I too came from a world where universal life insurance is kind of a dirty word. And I spent a little bit of time um, perpetuating the rumor that universal life insurance had evils and whole life insurance was, was undeniably superior. Um, which I have apologized for on numerous occasions and, and um, continue to feel bad about at times. But um, thankfully, I don't, I don't think I was in a position where I necessarily talked anybody out of universal life insurance uh, that was at a serious detriment to it because fairly early on, I, I turned direction on that. I've heard a lot that it's like, there's a lot of levers. So there's, there's more things that, there's more variables that could go that could go wrong. I, I've heard that cost of insurance can increase. That's that is like a big talking point. Uh, that if you again don't know a ton about index universal life insurance or whatnot, it's like oh, cost of insurance can skyrocket. Um, and we've also heard like in the '80s some some of the horror stories of you know policies blowing up, getting a letter and saying you need to fund fund more. Um, and so those are those are just some of the the reasons, the talking points that people that do whole life are saying like, hey. If you're going to put money into life insurance, why, like if you're going to invest, just invest your money. Why, why mess with certain variables and insurance shouldn't be an investment? What would you say that? Because I, I know that a lot of those things are talking points and just like whole life insurance, you, I mean, whole life insurance can be a horrible place to put your money and it can be also an amazing place to put your money and it could be the same company. A lot of times it's how you structure that. And, and so you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So to the to the argument that universal or index universal life insurance is complex i would throw down the challenge to explain to me or reconcile the payment of a dividend on a participating whole life insurance yeah. policy and ensure for me that the company paid you the right amount yeah um I think that the the complication argument is one that can cut both ways and it's it's dicey for people to try and make that argument against 
universal life insurance or index universal life insurance specifically because there are plenty of things about whole life insurance that we can note are complex and cryptic and strange. Um, the rising cost of insurance piece, I understand the historical point and I understand the worry. Um, there no doubt were people who bought universal life insurance 80s, 90s timeframe and they did it in a time where the assumption about interest rates were far loftier than they ended up prevailing. And as a result, people ended up with universal life insurance policies that were going to require substantially higher premiums to remain in force or much lower death benefits mm -hmm. to remain in force. And it's, it's absolutely a failure of the Im implementation of the product, not a failure of the product itself. Um, I have seen numerous aged universal life insurance policies sold at that time frame that were funded quite heavily. And they're at no risk of um, lapse. The problem came for all the people who purchased the product, assuming that they were going to get a discount on premium and get, for example, a million dollar death benefit that was maybe half the cost of what whole life insurance was trying to, to get from them. Those are the people who have had the biggest struggle with universal life insurance because it turns out there is no, no way to escape the actual cost of insuring someone. And so if, if whole life insurance said it needed $20,000 a year, but you bought universal life insurance because the agent told you it was only going to be 12, that, that should have, have caused some apprehension. Um, it didn't for whatever reason with a number of people they bought and found out years later that that was very much dependent on an interest rate staying at a certain level, which did not happen. Um, so the rising insurance cost piece, unfortunately, there are too many agents that want to sell against universal life insurance who pretend like rising insurance cost is just this sort of unbridled sort of it can go wherever the insurance company wants it to go. And that is what tears it all apart. And I'm aware of no situation where we can look empirically at that and say, yep, this insurance company has just totally put it to these clients. Um, there have been cost of insurance increases. Um, there have been people who have needed to put more money into universal life insurance policies as a result of interest rate assumptions going down lower than they were supposed to. Um, I know there have been a few lawsuits that have come about mostly on survivorship products where cost of insurance has gone up because investment results from the insurance company have underperformed expectations. Um, I'm not immediately aware of any of those that necessarily were in critical risk of lapse, but there are some people who have discovered that the, the timeline that they thought they had before policy would lapse is now more consolidated and that has caused some ire. Um, but again, none of these are failure points of the product. They're failure points of the implementation of the product. And there should have been more care taken when these things were implemented. Right. And that's that's kind of one of the things that I say when people are like, well, Dave Ramsey and Ramit Sethi and Susie Orman, it's like, listen, we would all agree with them if we saw the average implementation of how life insurance is set up. It's, it makes me cringe inside sometimes and, and what people are being told and how things are being implemented. And this is, it really doesn't matter if it's whole life or IUL from a standpoint of a lot of times the implementation is not done properly. And it's just a it is what it is. It's a lot of times you could you can make the argument that someone's still better off, but knowing what we know, it it's it can be kind of frustrating to see that inside. When when it comes to the universal life conversation, the whole life conversation, and when someone comes to you, is there a way, like is there a way to is there a couple questions that you ask to figure out like where you should lean or is it really tough case by case basis? Cause I'm just wanting to know like how you do the filter in your head from a standpoint of if you a properly designed life whole life or properly designed IUL, where do people lean and why do they lean there? I view the strengths falling largely in an income being the most critical goal versus cash in the interim being the most critical goal. So if somebody comes along and says, I am looking to plan for retirement income purposes, I have just, I've learned or, or heard that you can use life insurance for this application. And I think I want to implement that as one more bucket in the, the retirement income plan. Universal life insurance is strong for that application. 
if they come along and they say, I want to buy life insurance because I know about infinite banking or I just want another place to accumulate some cash for whatever purpose. And I have a strong likelihood in my mind that I'm going to start taking money from this thing as a policy loan or whatever have you early on, like maybe in the next five years or something like that. Whole life insurance tends to be a stronger bet for that. Um, it doesn't have to contend with things like surrender charges and um, it does accumulate cash a little bit more quickly than universal life insurance tends to. So that's kind of the first categorization that I try to make. Where do they fall there? Yeah. Um, regretfully, most people tell me, well, I want to do both. So that that makes it hard. Um, that That's kind of the most critical differentiator to me. Now, we have stated fairly publicly that that though we are completely indifferent between the two products and think that you can accomplish basically the same goal with with both of them, regardless of your your objective, with some minor refinements based on that scenario I just walked through. Um, we still very much tend to skew on the whole life side just in terms of what people ultimately buy. Um, somebody asked me very recently, like, what goes into telling somebody they should buy this or they should buy that? And I told this individual that at the end of the day, we we tend to show people both options. It just happens to be the case that most people at the end just choose whole life insurance. And honestly, I think a number of them choose whole life insurance, not because they have thoroughly gone through the iterations and decided definitively this is the right one for me, but they've kind of settled on something about whole life insurance or something about index universal life insurance that they were a little uncomfortable about. And that's where what puts them squarely where they, they fall. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't find the argument to be worth it to, to, to really kind of labor the point with them and say, no, 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 you should, you should absolutely go in this direction. Um, if they do, great, but ultimately, I think they'll be fine with either product. Yeah, uh, let's let's talk about infinite banking. Um, this is this is one of the one of the doors that opened for me when I was young. Uh, a lot of the people that mentored me came from that world, and I I learned early on to be a stickler about truth. <laughs> and like say the truth and not be misleading. And I will say this, um, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of phone calls because of this. A lot of things are, are used in marketing and they're, they're half truths. And I realized that um, it, it's, it's, a really in, it's a really cool concept and it's really this like, you know, like, let's look at the banks, let's understand how to do banking. And yet there's so many bad teaching out there and there's uh, a lot of marketing out there. And I'm not, I'm not uh, like... I'm not this holy person. I, I do marketing as well. So it's like, I'm just, I'm just wondering, you guys have taken pretty a hard stance, but you, you ultimately teach cash value, overfunded cash value life insurance, and, and you teach people how they can utilize that as an asset. But yet you also kind of attack in a way, um, people that are super infinite bankers and some of the things that they teach. I'll let you talk about the things that you like about that movement, things that you're maybe a little bit, um, dislike and may, maybe we can have a good conversation about it. Yeah. So I want to, I want to sort of split this in two areas at first, then we'll kind of go from there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the criticism that has come about just taking shots at various agents over the years really was born out of what we were seeing when all of this launched for, for the, for me and then later Brantley with the insurance pro blog, we used to run into a lot of people who were being proposed or had bought life insurance policies, predominantly whole life insurance policies, that very much played up the idea of using life insurance as a cash accumulation play, but they made no effort to, to optimize cash value. Hmm. Um, in fact, I... I <laughs> Several years ago, there was a relatively young guy who reached out to us. He was he was um, working with a pretty big name at Northwestern Mutual and um, was looking to buy a policy. And he discovered what we were talking about in terms of cash optimization, stuff like that, and confronted this guy about it. And this guy basically blew him off and told him, you should buy what I've proposed to you because it's good for you. And when he asked him point blank, well, how do you design policies that you buy for yourself? 
this guy told him, well, it wouldn't make sense for me to pay myself a commission, which was his admission that I, I do this the way that you want it, but I'm not going to do it for you that way. We used to run into so much of that that it that caused a lot of frustration in our eyes. When it comes to, to infinite banking, um, a lot of people think that I don't like it. Um, I have no issue with infinite banking. Um, I personally don't really get why it has a name, though I do understand that you have to lead people to some sort of natural progression to something. And in order to get them interested, sometimes you gotta, you gotta put a name on it because that, that makes them stand up and take notice. Um, my, my issues for infinite banking, I, I look at it as going sort of, we have Nelson Nash's original iteration of it, which was very much focused on business owner planning. Like this is how people who own businesses can acquire financing that can be quite difficult to get from traditional avenues. Um, and that was, in my eyes, brilliant. It, it was a really great way to present life insurance as an option to those people and, and un, excuse me, harness a very critically important component of the cash accumulation aspect, especially for somebody who's still alive. Um, and then we got the just awful sort of reiteration from Pam Yellen, which was all about, hey, you can do this and it can be all about your your unscrupulousness. Um, and sadly to me, it seems like for a long time, the infinite banking people wanted to put up a wall between them and the bank on yourself people. Because the bank on yourself people were selling vacations and, and cars and stuff like that. Whereas the infinite banking people were much more about the institution of the idea as almost a, another economic school of thought. And in recent years, that's gotten a lot blurrier for infinite banking. And a lot of those people, they don't uphold that same sort of we're not the bank on yourself people. Um, and they seem to be a lot more open to blurring those lines and being okay with people buying policies for reasons that most people in finance would look at as being rather rather irresponsible as far as as why you're you're going about this. Yeah. So that's been more my problem. Um I also fundamentally I'm not a believer in this idea that the banking system is ready to rob grandma from her last pennies and it is fraught with with problems and set up to to ultimately fail if that were the case i personally don't see where life insurance is the safety net yeah it's it's like people aren't going to buy a whole life insurance policy to stick it to the fed it might be it might be like a good talk, a talking point but it's like it's not the reason i'm going to you know buy a life insurance policy. I think the the two things that trigger me sometimes is people being super aggressive on funding. Um, and the, we see this thing like premium equal income and, and this this stuff is being taught like today. The other the other problem I have is um, just using policies to buy cars or paying off your mortgage and all this stuff. And like mathematically taking a chapter out of you know Pam's book and saying like, oh, you can actually be wealthy buying a car because you get uninterrupted compound growth and you know and it's like yeah and that's a half truth um any any two cents there like I, I agree with you from the standpoint of banking when you teach your clients on how to take a loan um or there are certain principles that you have when it comes to funding and how they should use their policy and um it's not like by taking a loan you're not making extra money unless the activity that you do with that loan is greater than the loan cost or control cost that's that's when you have that, then that can be a powerful asset if done properly, but then you're taking on potential risk that needs to be modeled in to that scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does. And, you know, there are plenty of people all across the United States who could take the original iteration of infinite banking and implement it. Yeah. We've done it with a bunch of people. And what's interesting about a lot of those individuals is they run businesses that are quite successful. And despite their, their success and the revenues that they have been able to generate and the, the businesses that are very consistent at generating income, they have a lot of, of rather poor lending options available. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked to a number of people running many millions of dollars a year in revenue businesses and their options for for lending to do business, I mean, they're 
10%. Um, and so when we start talking about life insurance as a way to take some of that excess cash that a lot of them are sitting on and store it somewhere and use it as a financing mechanism and the interest rate is five-ish percent, that all on its own gets them very, very excited. Any like do's or do nots to overfunded cash value life insurance as it relates to infinite banking? Because I, I want to talk about the next subject, which is a little bit off topic, um, but I just wanted to just put an end to this chapter um, from, from the standpoint of what you've seen, any other advice or things that you want to share about overfunding life insurance and some of the maybe horror stories that you've seen and or some of the examples that have, have done really well? I think the, the, the best sort of ad, cautionary advice is to not assume that if a little is good, more must always be better. Yeah. Um, we have been approached by people who are, are trying to figure out ways to put all of their income or something like that into life insurance and lend all of it back out. And, yeah. and it, 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 theoretically, maybe this works, but there's a lot of things that could come along and disrupt this. I remember we got, we got an email years ago from somebody who wanted to put basically everything that he had in disposable income and even kind of non-disposable income into a life insurance policy and then not pay his income taxes. And it was his theory that when the IRS came after him with a tax lien, he would be able to take money out of his 401k to satisfy that so that he could get it out of his 401k because he wasn't happy that it was in there. And my response to him was, well, that, that, kind of makes sense in theory. However, when you are facing an IRS lien, you don't get to choose where the money comes from. They do. So they might choose your 401k. They might choose your life insurance policy. Um, there's, there's no guarantee I can give you that by virtue of stuffing it all in life insurance and not paying your taxes, which I really don't think you should do, is going to, to end in what you're looking for. So Sometimes people dream up these crazy, crazy things. And, yeah. and there are times where there are agents who dream up these crazy, crazy things. And it's fine to implement this, but just understand that there is, there is moderation that is necessary. What would you say to the person that's saying, hey, I love this. Why don't I just fund life insurance, take loans and fund more life insurance? People call this you know, laddering policy, other than it being against the rules and you, get, you lose your license and all that. What, what would you say from a standpoint of like why that's not a good idea? Um, because borrowing to, to buy more is almost like using one credit card to pay off another. There is this, yeah. this cycle that starts. And if, if you are of considerable means in theory, you could, you could implement that and run it to a point where you're going to die before it catches up to you. But for most people, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, whenever you buy a new policy, there are always going to be certain expenses at, at, at inception that are going to make trying to maximize what you have dollars by taking money from one policy and buying a new one hard. Like that's, that's hard to overcome versus just leaving the money where it is now and letting it accumulate. I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. Let's talk about uh, Index Universal Life. Um, one, one, one person that's a, a great marketer out there is Curtis Ray. And uh, he, he does a really good job branding and he has calculator on his website that kicks out a, a pretty amazing income number. And um, we, we did a Google Trends and actually some of his, you know, strategies tr are, were trending last month. So he's definitely got the marketing thing down. Um, what are some, you know, for those people that are not familiar with with what Curtis teaches, he's essentially you know using uh, Index Universal Life with primarily one company, and then teaching people how they can really take some of that money and then fund fund more. And you know, I won't get into the, the strategy there, but that's essentially the standpoint of using leverage with Index Universal Life. And when you look at that arbitrage over a long period of time, like you know, it's better than anything in the world. Obviously some of my red flags come up if I'm being honest, like I'm a little biased. And at the same time, I want to be as fair as possible. I thought you'd be the best person to talk to about the strategy because you're like, you've seen it all. You're, you're not like pro you, you, you do both products, but you also like are a geek and like look into strategies like that. Do you have any comments or any thoughts? I, I don't, and again, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable situation. You can say, 
I plead the fifth and we move on. No, it's fine. Um, so uh, let me let me sort of set the stage with what I understand about Curtis and MPI, as I believe it's called. Um, so I'm, I don't remember where this came to me from, but I have sat through a like YouTube video a presentation of his talking about what he's doing and how it's supposed to work. And from what I can take apart here, it's it's boiled down to its most simplest forms. We buy a policy, an index universal life insurance policy with mutual of Omaha, and we take a loan against it within a few years. And we buy a new policy, and we just keep doing that because, in theory, if we are able to get an index credit on the the on the kind of prior IULs that are better than the loan that we're paying interest on, we will ultimately accumulate more money. And that is mathematically correct. The the question becomes, will you necessarily be able to generate the index credit high enough to always be overwhelming the accumulation of the loan? Um, To me, it, it reminds me of index universal life insurance in its infancy when we used to have kind of unlimited indexing illustration ability, um, it wasn't totally unlimited, but it was high, like eight and a half, nine percent indexed assumed in perpetuity credits on an IUL product and loan rates that were like four or five percent indexed loan rates. And what that did is it allowed insurance agents to show people these income scenarios where they saved $20,000 a year for 10 years and they started pulling half a million dollars out of the policy from like their mid 60s to age 100. And the reason it did that is because the spread between the loan rate and the accumulation assumed rate was significant. Um, I feel like this is kind of going back in that direction, which as an industry, we've tried to get away from. We've had regulation that's come along to get rid of that ability um, and have definitely put a lot more um, speed limits in place when it comes to how we assume these things will unfold into the future. The issue at its core is if the index universal life insurance product can in fact accumulate at a faster rate than the loan. And if it doesn't, what happens? And what's really interesting about that whole marketing scheme is I'm not aware of any functionality that allows us to evaluate, okay, if if I do this and my index credit is less than I'm thinking it's going to be, what's the net impact on this? In fact, um, I know because Mutual of Omaha has come up a number of times as we've done um, illustrations for prospective clients um, as a recommended company to look at. And um, the weird thing about them is, to my knowledge, you can't change the index credit that's assumed. It's static. It's six and a quarter percent, which is higher than I would have been comfortable assuming like 10 years ago, say nothing about right now. And, and, you know, the first time I was told we can't change it, it just, it is what it is. Um, But it's a good product. So I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe there's something I'm unaware of. Maybe there's some really great cap rate to an index feature or something that I'm missing. And from what I can pick apart, and I've got a pretty good understanding of index universal life insurance and how these things work. And I've spent a lot of time speculating on what various caps mean for what averages we can assume. The product has a 10% cap rate on a one-year point-to-point S&P 500 index, which is not high. It's not industry-leading. Um, it has a high uh, participation index option with like a seven or seven and a half percent cap currently. And then an uncapped strategy with a 50% participation rate, which is one of the worst uncapped IUL indexing features I'm aware of. Um, I don't know how we get to six and a quarter, but it's not something I would at all be comfortable assuming. Um, and again, six was the high end of what we were looking for as an assumption back in like 2014. So to be where we are now with interest rates and be assuming something over six, that's shooting for the stars. 
and and on top of that, you're you're then playing with leverage, which in a rosy world makes everything better, <laughs> and in an unrosy world, uh, accelerates accelerates things. That's been an, an issue for premium financing with indexed universal life insurance for a number of years, and thankfully that's gotten a little little better. But yeah. there was a time when we assumed something like three, three and a quarter as a loan and six-ish percent as the accumulation rate. And it looked amazing when we when we did that from a, a premium finance standpoint. But same principle at play here. Now, uh, using sort of your own proprietary calculator to, to project values, that raises some regulatory questions all on its own. And I... I would never touch that. Um, yeah. And I say that as somebody who has a, a whole life calculator on, on, a, on the website, but we took all those numbers from a real whole life product and created a database with them to give people an idea of what you might be able to accomplish with a whole life product. And that, that was no fancy sort of max cash yeah. thing. This is just a plain old whole life policy. And this is what the output was. Yeah. And, and there's, there's, there's those are other factors. Like, is it possible that cap rates on old products can be lower than what the company is is advertising. Yep. And so like there's other things and and I've always been told this and I'm grateful for my mentors who've shared this with me. They said, "Caleb, never sell life insurance as an investment. You will all it will always bite you in the butt." Um and just like don't don't try to like oversell this. Understand the pros and cons. It can be an amazing supplement. It can be something that can be an and in retirement. You could even use it as retirement income. And at the same time like I've just, I've been really aware because when I first started, I was like, you know, I was super aggressive from a standpoint, not aggressive as you can be with whole life. Right. But it's just like, oh, this is like the world's greatest thing. And now as I've been in the industry for a couple of years and, and met people like yourself, I, I, I actually like become more convicted about life insurance and less aggressive from a standpoint of it's like, it's not, it's not like the best asset out there in the world and all this stuff. It's like an amazing foundational asset that I think can enhance your life. And it's a part of your life. And I don't know if that makes any sense. I've like gained conviction in this, but then become way less hypey because I've just realized like, this is a long-term thing. And I don't want to do anything that tries to prohibit that or oversell it. Because in a lot of cases, I've seen fit people have to go, you know, things fail and not turn out the way that you thought it was going to be. And it's a lot of times with these over hypey concepts. And I just don't want to be a part of that. Yeah, well, I, I there's a there's an agent that um, reached out to me a number of years ago, and he told me when when he first found the website, he his his initial impression was eh, they're dumb, and the reason for that was he at the time was working in the infinite banking world. He was kind of working for some other agency that um, I think specifically was selling Mass Mutual, but I don't I don't remember exactly. And um, so he was he was out selling the concept of infinite banking. And about a year or two after he had been doing this, one of his clients called him up and said, hey, I took a loan and I paid interest on my loan. And you told me that when I do that, I'm going to receive that interest back when I do that. It's like, an extra dividend or whatever, but you told me I was going to get my, my interest back. So I'm just, I'm looking at my statement and I don't see where they paid me back my interest. So can you tell me where I'm going to get that? And he is like, I have no idea. So he went to his people at this agency and they're like, well, I mean, it's a theoretical construct where that interest goes towards the payment of the dividend to everybody. And so now he gets to go back to this client and tell them, yeah, I guess you don't exactly get what you pay directly back. Um, and, and that was when he actually reached out to us to let us know that, that he came back and found us because it turns out maybe, maybe we weren't as dumb as he thought. And, um, and I mean, we, we've forged a relationship from there. Uh, we keep in touch on occasion. Um, but this this is this is a problem when you over sensationalize these ideas. I agree. You go out and tell somebody that there's something that's going to happen, but then when it really comes time to have what you said take place and it doesn't, there's a big problem. Yep. I want you to talk about life insurance in retirement, 
you you guys have been talking a lot more about this on your podcast and it's whether it's whole life insurance as a potential bond alternative um as a potential annuity enhancer or just giving you more options in retirement one of the things that kind of had an epiphany for me is whether it's IUL or whole life is it possible that that asset could unlock more cash in the future that concept, and again, you can correct me, you can give your your own way of communicating, but that concept was like, okay, it's not just the growth of this widget, it's what having a properly structured widget can enhance in your other portfolio. That is something that I've learned the last year or so. I've had Dr. Wade Fowle on, uh, Jason Sanger at Wealth Building Cornerstones, um, and trying to better articulate why life insurance can enhance other parts of, of your retirement life. And I've heard you guys uh, articulate this quite well. So first I'll start by admitting that this is by no means original philosophy from, from either one of us. I largely stole this from a, an article that Guardian used to reproduce when I was there as a career agent. And the concept is basically if you own something like whole life insurance or indexed universal life insurance and you hold on to it as a retirement asset the stability that it provides gives you a lot of options to use other assets in a way that you wouldn't normally use them because you don't own that other position so for example if you have whole life insurance and you have equities you may end up spending down equities in a way that you wouldn't normally be comfortable doing when you get into retirement because you know the, the whole life insurance is going anywhere. It's going to continue to increase in value and it will always be there for the purpose of tapping for cash. It may supplement what you need to, but your, your cavalierness, so to speak, in terms of what you're willing to withdraw or even what you're willing to invest in um, as you get older may be dramatically different because you own that life insurance position. Um, I mean, I, I have advocated other pe- for other people. I've personally been involved in significantly riskier investments than I think I would be willing to go after if I didn't own cash value life insurance. Because I know that if something turns sideways on this, it's got a lot of time to sort itself out. And I've got other money that's not going anywhere with respect to unsurprised losses or excuse me, surprised losses. So having life insurance in retirement allows you to do that. And in addition, for your typical couple, um, owning life insurance as a retirement income tool gives you the ability to leverage the death benefit to again, either spend down the life insurance or other assets and know that one of them is going to die first. And most of the time we can speculate on which one it's going to be and we'll get it right the majority of the time. So that death benefit existing allows a sort of refilling of the the retirement account, so to speak, that also allows people to be in a position where they can unlock more of the cash that they have and they don't have to be quite as worried about what they're spending and how much is left year over year. Well stated. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, is there is there anything else that you want to go on record for saying or any any other epiphanies that you want to say before we wrap this up? I think the, the, the one comment that has been a very early adoption for me with respect to whole life insurance and index universal life insurance as a strategy inside the portfolio. It is a excellent tool to sort of lock in the success that you've had with something else. We sell a lot of life insurance to people who made risky-ish bets, paid off, but realized that doubling down would not be prudent. It may work, but they're not willing to bet on that. So what happens instead is they've come to us, they fund a life insurance policy for a certain number of years. And that gives them the peace of mind to maybe dip their toe into that riskier thing again, but knowing that at the very least, they have this position from this gain that they got, however, and they're not going to lose that. And that means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's very much a foundational asset that... Um, 
you know, having a solid foundation can be beneficial, super beneficial, depending on where you're going. And I also love what you said about, you know, being able to take more risk potentially, or do have, have options to do other things because you have money that's not necessarily correlated to that. Um, the, the book, psychology of money, um, talks about this concept of your 0% savings and how that can actually unlock greater wealth. It had nothing to do with life insurance, but when I read it, um, I was like, man, that, that's, that, that concept is very similar because it's what's, what's the ROI of having seven months liquidity and saying yes to a business opportunity. Whereas if you didn't have that seven months liquidity, you might not say yes, to that business opportunity. And it may, that could have been a massive difference in your life. Mm-hmm. I want to just end with a non-insurance related question. And it's, it is, it's a legacy question. Uh, I end all of, all of the shows with this question. It essentially goes like this. If this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most, you can't give them any podcast or blog or book you've ever written, um, but you can give them one last conversation. Uh, what are you going to make sure to highlight in that conversation? Me personally, I'm going to dive into a discussion about not trying to get lost in silly little details, which sounds very strange for someone with my background. But the truth is I very much partition that in my life. So life insurance is one thing where we dig into details. Everything else, I don't get lost in that kind of stuff. Um, and so for me, I, I personally look to experts to fill me in on the details I need and then make a decision from there. And trying to to gain mastery level understanding of everything in life, that's impossible. So to the people around me, I guess the, the one parting piece of advice is don't try to master everything because it'll never work. I, I appreciate that, man. I uh, appreciate what you're, what you're doing in the world. I will link to your blog, your podcast. Is there any other ways that people can stay connected with you? I know that there's a lot of advisors and agents listening to this. I know that you guys have incredible resources for advisors that really want to go deeper. Um, how can people connect with what you're doing and um, maybe join the Life Insurance Nerd Club? Um, reach out. There's there there are ways to contact us through the website, and um, we're always always willing to engage with people. We can't get back to everybody all the time. That just happens. Um, but um, we we are definitely interested in other people's perspectives and ideas and thoughts. There's a number of, of podcasts that we've put out that are purely from questions or suggestions that other people have come to us with. So we are, we're open, we're approachable and um, it flows primarily through the website. Amazing. Brandon Roberts, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.